Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Kerry Parker. Today, we have episode 365 for February 26th, 2024. We got a news show for you today and lots to cover. So let me get through a couple pre-news notes here real quick. Uh, first of all, there are still two people out of the 10 winners for the annual listener survey book winners that have not replied yet. You're not watching your email inboxes. All I need is your shipping information. Uh, and I will send you a free copy of the book. Check your spam folders too. Definitely poke around your inbox and make sure you're not missing an email from me about winning a free copy of the book. Second, real quick, I want to talk about the AT&T outage. Uh, this hit the U.S. a couple of days ago. And for like, I, don't know, I think it was like 11 or 12 hours, many, many people had zero cell service, like not even 911 services in a, in a lot of cases. It was pretty bad. They're still investigating it so far. They're saying it's a software glitch and not a cyber attack. And apparently the government agrees. And yet they're still looking into it. So uh, we'll need to figure out what happened there. But this is an opportunity, right? This is a teachable moment. We need to understand that cellular service has become the new landline service. Back in the day, I, I've worked for several companies uh, like Nortel back in the day where we did cellular service, but we also did landline service and landline service had some stringent requirements. It was critical infrastructure and the government recognized it as such. They basically told you know, the, the, the landline phone companies, like you got to have five nines, you got to have 99.999% uptime. And if you don't, we're going to fine you heavily because this stuff is really important. And we explicitly didn't do that for cellular, at least back in the day, because cellular was just kind of flaky. The whole wireless thing, you know, had a whole bucket of problems that made it generally less reliable. I mean, anytime you go wireless over wired, you know, you're going to have some problems. And yet, I read some stats around this, and most homes today don't have landlines. So cellular is, is the new POTS, or what we used to call plain old telephone service. And because it's cellular, it's it's more than just voice calls, right? Cellular has text messaging, so a lot of people were unable to get two-factor authentication codes over SMS. And a lot of our modern devices use cellular modems now. For example, Tesla Apparently, their cars use AT&T service for their cellular modems in their vehicles. I'll be very interested to see what sort of features were unavailable to these cellular IoT devices, basically. We're going to hear more about this. This was a teachable moment. This was a chance for us to realize how much we depend on this and how much cellular networks have become critical infrastructure, and we, we need to treat them as such. My guess is that the government is probably going to wake up here and have a higher requirement for uptime like we used to have for landlines. And I'll tell you what, this has certainly accelerated my plans to uh, learn about ham radio and just emergency communications in general. All right, so we have a new show for you today. Quick rundown. We're going to talk about a wise security breach again. The Associated Press has an article about how Poland's prime minister says authorities were using spyware on members of the government. The U.S. military has notified about 20,000 service members about a data breach due to a cloud email leak. I'm going to talk about how somebody was scammed out of $50,000 in cash and then what an elaborate scam that is, but why it could happen to anybody. Skiff Mail has been acquired by a company called Notion, and acquisitions aren't always a problem, but in this case, they're actually shutting down their service in six months. So if you are using Skiff Mail or Skiff Documents, they've got several features now. Uh, you're going to want to pay attention to that. The FTC has just fined Avast, which is an antivirus maker, $16.5 million for selling browsing data. An EU court has 
basically come out and said the backdoors in encryption are bad for society and violate human rights. The LockBit ransomware group has been taken down in a multinational effort. Apple's iMessage is getting some great post-quantum encryption protections. Signal has finally adopted usernames so that you can keep your cell phone number private. And there's some new Android features that will keep you safer online. And then finally, we'll wrap up with my tip of the week where I will tell you how to mitigate some of the risks that AI is bringing. So let's get right to it. All right, here's an article from Lifehacker, uh, and this is about another wise security cam breach. When you put a camera in your house, there is a not zero chance someone on the internet will see you in your underwear. Case in point, earlier this week, Wise alerted customers that there was a breach of security that allowed external parties to see live views of others' Wise cameras for a period of time. And they have a little snippet here of the note that was sent out to Wise customers by the Wise business. They say, Wise friends. And this is W-Y-Z-E, wise friends. On Friday morning, we had a service outage that led to a security incident. Your account and over 99.75% of all wise accounts were not affected by the security event, but we wanted to make sure you were aware of the incident and let you know what we are doing to make sure it doesn't happen again. The outage originated uh, from our partner, AWS, and took down wise devices for several hours early Friday morning. If you tried to view live cameras or events during that time, you likely weren't able to. We're very sorry for the first and confusion this caused. About 13,000 Wise customers temporarily had access to other Wise cameras that weren't theirs. According to Wise, this is less than 2.5% of their user base. Some of these 13,000 users received thumbnails from cameras that weren't theirs, and about 1,500 people tapped on those thumbnails to enlarge the thumbnail or see a live view or clip. The problem originated with, with an AWS partner on Friday, February 16th, which caused an outage of Wise services for a number of hours. As the devices came back online, they overwhelmed the system, which mixed up the mapping between user IDs and device IDs. Wise logged out and disposed of the token of every Wise user who logged in on Friday, the day the offending action took place, which would have caused people to re-log in. This is the second time in six months that this type of event has happened. In September of 2023, a similar small su subset of Wise customers, about 2,500, reported seeing images or accessing feeds from cameras that weren't theirs due to a web caching issue. Unfortunately, these weren't even the only issues. A security firm publicly called out vulnerabilities at Wise a few years ago, and Wise has settled a suit regarding the issue. Wise, as a brand, definitely falls into the more affordable segment of security cameras, but breaches like this are not unique. We've seen them at larger companies as well. While we shouldn't have to trade off the ability to watch our pets cavort around the living room while we're out with the possibility of other people also being able to stay into our homes, it has become the cost of doing business. That doesn't mean it's okay, however. So yeah, I think I would basically sum that up the same way. You kind of get what you pay for when it comes to security, but any device can have a security problem. So we just have to be careful and be aware of how we're using these things. Never put them in any place that might be compromising. All right, moving on. This one's from the Associated Press. Poland's new prime minister said Tuesday he has documentation proving that state authorities under the previous government used the powerful Pegasus spyware illegally and targeted a very long list of hacking victims. Donald Tusk made the announcement during a news briefing alongside President Andrzej Duda. 
a political opponent aligned with the previous ruling party. The use of Pegasus was alleged to have occurred under the government led by the right-wing Law and Justice Party. Pegasus gives operators complete access to a mobile device, allowing them to extract passwords, photos, messages, contacts, and browsing histories, and to activate the microphone and camera for real-time eavesdropping. Prime Minister said he asked the Justice Minister and Prosecutor General to provide Duda with documents which, quote, confirm 100% the purchase and use of Pegasus in a legal and illegal manner, unquote. The new parliament has set up a special commission to investigate who used Pegasus and against whom during law and justice's years in government. Several Polish opponents of the previous government were targeted with Pegasus, a spyware program made by Israel's NSO group, according to findings by the University of Toronto's nonprofit Citizen Lab, which were exclusively reported by the Associated Press. This is a quote from John Scott Railton, who was a senior researcher at Citizen Lab, quote, This vindicates the victims and the technical and forensic methods we use to confirm infections. Commercial spyware like Pegasus is dangerous to democracy and carries a baked-in abuse potential, unquote. The NSO group has said that it only sells spyware to legitimate government, law enforcement, and intelligence agencies vetted by Israel's defense ministry for use against terrorists and criminals. But evidence has emerged of human rights activists and politicians being targeted by governments worldwide. Some of those who were hacked received notifications on their iPhones from phone maker Apple, then turned to Citizen Lab for confirmation. Scott Railton said Tusk's confirmation, quote, affirms the key role Apple's threat notifications play in driving accountability for commercial spyware abuses. In Poland, these notifications were the first sign for researchers and reporters that a spyware scandal was lurking, unquote. So once again, this is Pegasus spyware being abused, which shouldn't surprise anybody, but it's good that these things are seeing the light of day and that we're calling attention to these things uh, because it's just it's going to happen. There just should not be an open market for commercial spyware. As we like to say, there is no backdoor that only the good guys can go through. And then, you know, and then when you pick it apart, how do you define good guys? How do you define bad guys? So the only safe way to do any of this stuff is to make this stuff off limits and to make it safe for everybody. And I also wanted to call attention to this interesting iPhone feature that, you know, alerted these people that their phones may be being attacked by nation state kind of actors, spyware. So that's a good thing, and I'm glad Apple's doing that. Okay, next up, this is from TechCrunch. The U.S. Department of Defense is notifying tens of thousands of individuals that their personal information was exposed in an email data spill last year. According to the breach notification letter sent out to affected individuals on February 1st, the Defense Intelligence Agency, the DOD's military intelligence agency, said, quote, numerous email messages were inadvertently exposed to the Internet by a service provider, unquote, between February 3rd and February 20th of 2023. That's last year. TechCrunch has learned that the breach disclosure letters relate to an unsecured U.S. government cloud email server that was spilling sensitive emails to the open Internet. The cloud email server, hosted on Microsoft's cloud for government customers, was accessible from the Internet without a password, likely due to a misconfiguration. The DoD is sending breach notification letters to around 20,000 individuals whose information was affected. And this is a quote from DoD spokesperson Commander Tim Gorman. Quote, As a matter of practice and operations security, we do not comment on the status of our network and systems. The affected server was identified and removed from public access on February 20th, 2023, and the vendor has resolved the issues that resulted in the exposure. DoD continues to engage with the service provider on on improving cyber event prevention and detection. Notification to affected individuals is ongoing, unquote. 
TechCrunch exclusively reported in February of 2023 that the DOD was spilling out three terabytes of internal military emails, some of which pertain to U.S. Special Operations Command, or SOCOM, which carries out special military operations overseas. Some of the exposed information included sensitive personnel information and questionnaires by prospective federal employees seeking security clearances. Anyone with the public IP address of the exposed cloud email server could access the sensitive but unclassified emails inside using only a web browser. Security researcher Anurag Sen discovered the exposed data spilling online and asked for TechCrunch's help in reporting the data exposure to the U.S. government. TechCrunch reported the spill to SOCOM on February 19th, and I'm assuming that's last year. The cloud email server was secured on February 20th after TechCrunch escalated the incident to senior U.S. government officials after not hearing back. It's not clear for what reason the DOD took a year to investigate the incident or notify those affected. A spokesperson for Microsoft did not respond to a request for comment. So a couple things. First of all, I don't know how in this day and age, especially on a dedicated military cloud service from Microsoft, a huge company with deep pockets and a reputation to maintain, could possibly be, quote unquote, misconfigured. It shouldn't even be possible to have this information exposed without protection. Like you shouldn't be able to go any further with the installation process or with any configuration change without making sure that the data is secured. I, I don't get how this happens. And I hope they dig into this and figure this out because this is not the first time this has happened. A lot of AWS buckets and things have ended up on the internet with zero protection. And it's not hard to find these things. There are search engines dedicated to poking around the internet 24 seven looking for exposed email servers and other services like this with zero, with no protection on them. It's just inexcusable. And I'll go on to say at this point that I don't know why the emails themselves were not individually encrypted, like end-to-end PGP-style encryption. Just seems like if I, if I was in the military, that's just something I would, I would just do. Okay, this next story is really long, uh, and I'm not going to read it all, but I'm going to read you enough of it to give you a flavor uh, and then use it as an opportunity to talk about how this could really honestly happen to anybody. This is from a website called The Cut, which I'd never heard of, but that's immaterial. Uh, It's about how somebody was scammed into giving up $50,000 in cash to basically strangers. And I'm going to read you uh, a couple excerpts from this and then give you my take. So it starts out, on a Tuesday evening this past October, I put $50,000 in cash in a shoebox, taped it shut as instructed, and carried it to the sidewalk in front of my apartment, my phone clasped to my ear. Don't let anyone hurt me, I told the man on the line, feeling pathetic. You won't be hurt, he answered. Just keep doing exactly as I say. Three minutes later, a white Mercedes SUV pulled up to the curb. The back window will open, said the man on the phone. Do not look at the driver or talk to him. Put the box through the window, say thank you, and go back inside. The man on the phone knew my home address, my social security number, the names of my family members, and that my two-year-old son was playing in our living room. He told me my home was being watched, my laptop had been hacked, and we were in imminent danger. I can help you, but only if you cooperate, he said. His first orders, I could not tell anyone about our conversation, not even my spouse, or talk to the police or a lawyer. Now, I know this is all a scam, a cruel and violating one, but painfully obvious in retrospect. Here's what I can't figure out. Why didn't I just hang up and call 911? Why didn't I text my husband or my brother, a lawyer? or my best friend, also a lawyer, or my parents, or one of the many other people who would have helped me? Why did I hand over all that money, the contents of my savings account, strictly for emergencies, without a bigger fight? 
When I've told people this story, most of them say the same thing. You don't seem like the type of person this would happen to. What they mean is that I'm not senile or hysterical or a rube. But these stereotypes are actually false. Younger adults, Gen Z, Millennials, and Gen X, are 34% more likely to report losing money to fraud compared with those over 60, according to a recent report from the Federal Trade Commission. Another study found that well-educated people or those with good jobs were just as vulnerable to scams as everyone else. And she goes on and on, but then she actually starts into the story, and I just, <laughs> I'm going to give you a little bit, a little taste of how this whole thing started, uh, and then I think you'll understand why it's so fascinating and That's something that you might want to read in full. It was October 31st. I dressed my toddler in a pizza costume for Halloween and kissed him goodbye before school. I wrote some work emails. At about 12.30 p.m., my phone buzzed. The caller ID said it was Amazon. I answered. A polite woman with a vague accent told me she was calling from Amazon customer service to check out some unusual activity on my account. The call was being recorded for quality assurance. Had I recently spent $8,000 on MacBooks and iPads? I had not. I checked my Amazon account. My order history showed diapers and groceries, no iPads. The woman, who said her name was Krista, told me the purchases had been made under my business account. I don't have a business account, I said. Hmm, she said, our system shows that you have two. Krista and I concurred that I was the victim of identity theft, and she said she would flag the fraudulent accounts and freeze their activity. She provided me with a case ID number for future reference and recommended that I check my credit cards. I did, and everything looked normal. I thanked her for her help. Then Krista explained that Amazon had been having a lot of problems with identity theft and false accounts lately. It had become so pervasive that the company was working with a liaison at the Federal Trade Commission and was referring defrauded customers to him. Could she connect me? Uh, sure, I said. Krista transferred the call to a man who identified himself as Calvin Mitchell. He said he was an investigator with the FTC, gave me his badge number, and had me write down his direct phone line in case I needed to contact him again. He also told me our call was being recorded. He asked me to verify the spelling of my name. Then he read me the last four digits of my social security number, my home address, and my date of birth to confirm that they were correct. The fact that he had my social security number really threw me. I was getting nervous. I'm glad we're speaking, said Calvin. Your personal information is linked to a case that we've been working on for a while now, and it's quite serious. He told me that 22 bank accounts, nine vehicles, and four properties were registered to my name. The bank accounts had wired more than $3 million overseas, mostly to Jamaica and Iraq. Did I know anything about this? No, I said. Did I know someone named Stella Suk Yi Kwong? I don't think so, I said. He texted me a photo of her ID, which he claimed had been found in a car rented under my name that was abandoned on the southern border of Texas with blood and drugs in the trunk. A home in New Mexico affiliated with a car rental had subsequently been raided, he added, and authorities found more drugs, cash, and bank statements registered to my name and social security number. He texted me a drug bust photo of bags of pills and money stacked on a table. He told me that there were warrants out for my arrest in Maryland and Texas, and that I was being charged with cybercrimes, money laundering, and drug trafficking. So you can see that this escalated quickly, and you can see that There there were a lot of people involved. This was a very, very involved scam. But at the end of the day, this person convinced this regular everyday person who does business writing for a living, who should have seen this as a scam, managed to get her worked up, get her very nervous, uh, dropped a few tidbit facts that made her believe this was all real, threw in some fancy social engineering, you know, like, here's the, here's your case number. Here's my badge ID, things that as it turns out, she would have no way to, to verify by the time she got all this stuff done. 
but made all of this seem more credible. This goes on and on. He he eventually convinces her that her her money is being stolen, uh, that she better basically get her cash out and put it in, in a safe space for now and that he could protect it because any place that she would try to put it in her accounts under her ID were vulnerable. And so she needed to get the money out of her accounts and put it somewhere else safe. And the only way to do that was with cash and to trust him and his you know organization. Uh, it was a very complicated story. And if you have time, I would read it. The other thing I'll note is that Cory Doctor recently posted a similar story. It was not anywhere near as long, but he was also scammed. He was duped. Cory Doctorow. And in his case, for example, one of the things they did was they asked for the last seven digits of his credit card to verify that they had the right thing, not the last four, which should have tipped him off and didn't. And what ended up happening to him in this case was if you know the issuing bank of a credit card, especially if it's a small bank, if you have the last seven digits... That's probably enough to reconstruct the entire 16-digit number, which is what happened to him. So what's the bottom line here? The bottom line is that anyone, anyone can be scammed. Some scams, like the one that we're talking about here, are much more elaborate than others, but obviously they were going for a lot of money, so they had a lot of people involved, they had their scripts down, they'd gone to great lengths to put together this story and end up getting $50,000 in cash from this woman. So that's a very elaborate one, and, and that those are probably more rare. And honestly, I think oftentimes it's the simple ones that that get us, that catch us more off guard. So be vigilant. Know that these things that are happening out there, you know, try not to make any major financial decisions when you're highly distracted or under duress. Trust your gut. If something seems wrong, you know, hang up, get away from the situa- situation, no matter what they tell you. In this case, this person was telling her, you cannot hang up. If you hang up, you know, I can't help you. you know, these are all ways to play on your, your fears. And keep them talking to you and and walking you through this process. It's all part of the social engineering process. These people can be very, very, very clever. uh, And they're much more prepared than you are. They've been working up to this. They've got their scripts down. They've, They've done it many, many times. They've refined their techniques. They understand how human emotions work. They've got, uh, somehow they've got enough information on you, uh, enough little juicy tidbits that they're going to be able to convince you that they know you and that they're quote unquote legitimate. You might think you can be smart and ask them questions that are going to throw them off or expose their their scam, but they're they're ready for that. So my advice in this case would just be hang up, get away from it, delete the email, and then contact authorities if you're actually worried about it. Or at least bring somebody else in that you know and trust who can give you a fresh perspective on this and help talk you down because they can these guys are really good at getting you worked up and getting you worried. That's that's how these scams work. All right, moving on. This next article is from Restore Privacy, a, a website that I like, talking about Skiff Mail, uh, and it's more than just mail. It started, Skiff started out as a secure and private email service. They've since added docs and some other great features, but they are shutting down in six months, kind of out of nowhere. Uh, let me read this article, and then I'll give you my take. Skiff, the popular encrypted email service provider, was acquired by the Evernote note-taking app maker Notion and will become part of the company's product portfolio. Unfortunately, Notion has no interest in keeping the secure email service alive in its current form. Existing Skiff users may only continue to enjoy email services for roughly six more months, so they need to move quickly to find a new trustworthy provider to migrate their data to. 
Skiff is a private end-to-end encrypted decentralized workspace offering mail, calendar, docs, and cloud storage uh, services, or Drive, used by approximately half a million people. Our in-depth Skiff mail review of the product praised its encryption, anti-tracking, phishing protections, and interoperability, albeit it lacked extensive customization options. The acquisition by Notion was communicated with enthusiasm on Skiff's social media channels, where the company failed to highlight the crucial fact that their service will sunset in six months and users should take action to ensure a smooth transition to a new platform. Many criticized this approach for increasing the risk of current Skiff users remaining unaware of the looming shutdown, possibly leading to the loss of critical personal data without being given an opportunity to export it. The only thing that implies the impending shutdown is linking to a data migration guide at the bottom of the acquisition announcement, taking users to a guide that provides more details about the wrap-up timelines and available data exporting methods. The guide contains instructions on exporting emails, contacts, calendar entries, and custom domains, and creating email forwarding rules to receive any incoming communication to the new address. Also, those who had purchased a subscription that expires after August 9th, 2024, will be eligible for a refund calculated based on the remainder period. Okay, so it goes on. But this is very disappointing, and I frankly don't understand why the Skiff people made this sound like such a win. The announcement was titled, We are excited to share that Skiff is joining Notion, and went on to say, We're extremely excited to accelerate this mission by joining forces, forces with Notion's world-class team, and we are pursuing big plans for making all of our online lives freer and more empowered. We look forward to continuing to serve you with even more exciting updates on the horizon, unquote. So, I mean, that sure sounds like everything's going to be okay, right? Like everything you have is still going to be there. You're just going to have more things because now we're with Notion. But apparently that is not true. Now, I think it's still possible, obviously, since it's six months out, that there will be a backlash here and that they may extend those services for longer periods of time or Notion may change their mind and keep the service going for a while longer or incorporate it into Notion somehow. We'll see. But for the time being, what they're not quite saying is that because of this acquisition, the, a lot of these Skiff services are actually going away. Now, Skiff was launched like two years ago, I think is what I found out. I looked it up on the web uh, and they implemented all these really cool tools. And uh, I have an account, though I haven't really used it, but I wanted to play with it. It it's, looks good. I mean, the, you know, I was actually pretty impressed. But here's the bottom line. We, we tend to keep email and messaging accounts for a really, really long time. These are kind of lifelong things that once we find a thing we like, we stick with it because we don't have to tell people, you know, a new email address or a new phone number. You know, we, we kind of tend to hold on to these things until we have to give them up. But, you know, companies go out of business or they get bought out or they simply stop supporting individual products. Google has killed off many products, even though the company itself is obviously very financially viable. So in this particular case with email, this is where owning your own domain name can insulate you from this particular problem because you can change out the underlying email provider whenever you want and no one will be the wiser. Your email address will not change. You own, you know, mycooldomain.com. So, you know, if my email was carry at mycooldomain.com and my email provider that I'm using to service that account goes out of business or gets bought or closes down or whatever, I can just change that out underneath and no one will ever know the difference. They can still keep sending emails to that. And in fact, in most cases, if you switch email providers, you can actually bring over all your historical emails and things so you don't even lose that. So that is one of the benefits to using uh, your own domain for emails. I have an article on this. If you go to firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com uh, and search for email aliasing and look at the article that, that talks about having your own domain, it gets into all that stuff. All right, next up, some good and bad news, I guess, uh, from uh, 404 Media. 
the Federal Trade Commission fined cybersecurity company Avast $16.5 million for selling browsing data that the company harvested through its antivirus software and browser plugins, according to an announcement from the FTC. The sizable fine comes in response to a 2020 investigation of Mine, and this is the author of this article back when they were at Vice, that worked on a collaboration with PC Mag that uncovered the data selling practices. The FTC will also ban Avast from selling browsing data for advertising purposes in the future. And this is a quote from the FTC announcement. Avast Limited, based in the United Kingdom, through its Czech subsidiary, unfairly collected consumers' browsing information through the company's browser extensions and antivirus software, stored it indefinitely, and sold it without adequate notice and without consumer consent. The FTC also charges that Avast deceived users by claiming that the software would protect consumers' privacy by blocking third-party tracking, but failed to adequately inform consumers that it would sell their detailed, re-identifiable browsing data. The FTC alleged Avast sold the data to more than 100 third parties through its subsidiary, JumpShot. Staggeringly, the complaint said that JumpShot never deleted this data, resulting in 8 petabytes, and by the way, a petabyte is a 1,000 terabytes, which is a lot of data, eight petabytes of browsing information stretching from 2014 to 2020. JumpShot was the Avast arm that sold the data. In my investigation, I obtained documents and files from inside JumpShot, some of which included people's specific browsing data harvested by Avast products. Google searches, Google map locations, specific YouTube videos and LinkedIn pages, and porn websites. As I reported at the time, it was possible to see what specific date and time a user visited YouPorn and Pornhub, and in some cases, what search term they entered into the porn site and which video they watched. JumpShot then packaged this data and sold various products based on it, including the company's so-called all-click feed. That product allows a client to buy information on all the clicks JumpShot has observed on a particular site, such as Amazon.com, Walmart.com, Target.com, BestBuy.com, or eBay.com. Internal documents mentioned companies such as Expedia, IBM, Intuit, which makes TurboTax, L'Oreal, and Home Depot, and employees are told to not speak publicly about relationships with these companies. The idea, JumpShot said in a previous press release, was to, quote, provide marketers with deeper visibility into the entire online customer journey, unquote. The data was anonymized, but internal documents showed that the device ID for each user did not change unless a user uninstalled and reinstalled the software. In other words, it could be possible to identify real people in the data based on the information gathered about them. The FTC takes particular issue with Avast advertising their products for securing users' devices while at the same time collecting data on them for other purposes. So I said this was good and bad. <laughs> Obviously, the bad is that this company was collecting data you know, supposedly a company that's there to protect your privacy and security was actually collecting data and selling uh, that data to other people without decent notice and consent, which is quite obviously bad. The good thing is that the FTC is on it and they are finding this company. I don't know how much of a dent $16.5 million is going to make in this company. Certainly when we're talking about companies like Facebook and Google or whatever, that's a, you know, that's a drop in the bucket, but maybe for a vast, it's, it's a, it's a meaningful sum. But hopefully it's also a big black eye for Avast and companies like them that use their privileged position. Because when you install antivirus software or a VPN client, when you're installing the software, they necessarily, in a lot of cases, need enhanced permissions and privileges on your machine to do what they need to do. But that also allows them to see all your browsing data, for example, and turn around and sell that. These companies will tell you if you if you look in the fine print that they're only collecting anonymized data or maybe aggregate data. 
But you should know that in a lot of cases, that data can easily be re-identified. They don't often do a proper job of anonymizing this data. They may say they do. They may even actually try to do what it is they're saying to do, but a lot of them fail to do it properly. So even with good intentions, they often screw up. The only way to avoid this is just not to collect this data in the first place. So when you're looking at products like this, look for ones that just do not collect data. The ones that say, oh yeah, we collected, it, but it's anonymized or, or it's fully encrypted with military grade encryption. And they try to throw all this marketing speak at you. The bottom line is if they're collecting the data, it can be abused. So whenever possible, when you're using antivirus software, using VPN software, or actually any software, but it's really ironic and irking that the security and privacy software in particular are bad about this. So beware when you're using these products. The best ones are the ones that just absolutely do not collect data at all. And those are probably the ones that cost more money. And that's probably not a coincidence. All right, next up, this is an article from uh, Ars Technica uh, about a very important ruling in the EU. The European Court of Human Rights, or ECHR, has ruled that weakening end-to-end encryption disproportionately risks undermining human rights. The international court's decision could potentially disrupt the European Commission's proposed plans to require email and messaging service providers to create backdoors that would allow law enforcement to easily decrypt users' messages. The ruling came after Russia's intelligence agency, the Federal Security Service, or FSS, began requiring Telegram to share users' encrypted messages to deter terrorism-related activities in 2017, ECHR's ruling said. A Russian Telegram user alleged that FSS's requirements violated his rights to a private life and private communications, as well as all Telegram users' rights. Telegram refused to comply with an FSS order to decrypt messages on six users suspected of terrorism. According to Telegram, it was technically impossible to provide the authorities with encryption keys associated with specific users, and therefore any disclosure of encryption keys would affect the privacy of the correspondence of all Telegram users, the ECHR's ruling said. The Russian government told the ECHR that allegations that the security services had access to communications of all users were unsubstantiated because their request only concerned six Telegram users. They further argued that Telegram providing encryption keys to FSB did not mean that the information necessary to decrypt encrypted electronic communications would become available to its entire staff. Essentially, the government believed that FSB staff's duty of discretion would prevent any intrusion on private life for Telegram users, as described in the ECHR document. Seemingly most critically, the government told the ECHR that any intrusion on private lives resulting from decrypted messages was necessary to combat terrorism in a democratic society. However, privacy advocates backed up Telegram's claims that the messaging services couldn't technically build a backdoor for governments without impacting all its users. They also argued that the threat of mass surveillance could be enough to infringe on human rights. The European Information Society Institute and Privacy International told ECHR that even if governments never used required disclosures to mass surveil citizens, it could have a chilling effect on user speech or prompt service providers to issue radical software updates, weakening encryption for all users. In the end, the ECHR concluded that the Telegram users' rights had been violated, partly due to privacy advocates and international reports that corroborated Telegram's position that complying with the FSB's disclosure order would force changes impacting all its users. And this is a quote from the ECHR's ruling. The confidentiality of communications is an essential element of the right to respect for private life and correspondence. Thus, requiring messages to be decrypted by law enforcement cannot be regarded as necessary in a democratic society. 
The ruling strikes a blow to authoritarian measures that seek to undermine fundamental rights protections in the digital age. And finally, this is a quote from uh, Ionis Kuvakis, a senior legal officer for Privacy International. And Ionis says, the ruling strikes a blow to authoritarian measures that seek to undermine fundamental rights protections in the digital age. By finding that Russia's efforts to circumvent encryption on online messaging services violated the European Convention on Human Rights, the court sends a clear message to other governments currently toying with similar ideas. Risking the privacy and security of each and every user is certainly not the way to go. So this is a welcome ruling. I'm I'm glad to see this. I'm not familiar enough with how all these organizations in Europe work together to know how binding such a ruling might be, but it, it's, a, it's a good first step. It's good to see, and hopefully this will put a speed bump in the plans for many of these European and honestly global organizations to try to mandate some sort of privileged access to encrypted communications. All right, some more good news from Ars Technica. Uh, the LockBit ransomware group has been taken down. Law enforcement agencies, including the FBI and the UK's National Crime Agency, have dealt a crippling blow to LockBit, one of the world's most prolific cybercrime gangs, whose victims include Royal Mail and Boeing. The 11 international agencies behind Operation Kronos said on Tuesday that the ransomware group, many of whose members are based in Russia, has been locked out of its own systems. Several of the group's key members have been arrested, indicted, or identified, and its core technology seized, including hacking tools and its dark web homepage. Graham Bigger, NCA Director General, said law enforcement officials had successfully infiltrated and fundamentally disrupted LockBit. Over the past four years, LockBit has been involved in thousands of ransomware attacks on victims around the world, from high-profile corporate targets to hospitals and schools. The hacking group's technology, which locks organizations out of their own IT systems, has been used by a global network of hackers to inflict billions of dollars worth of damage to victims through about $120 million in ransom payments and millions more in recovery costs, according to officials. Five defendants have been charged in the U.S., officials said, including two Russian nationals. Two of the five are in custody. Another two alleged members of the gang were arrested in Ukraine and Poland on Tuesday, with law enforcement officials promising more to come. We will be closing in on those individuals, said Bigger, adding that the agencies had frozen about 200 cryptocurrency accounts and seized a wealth of data to fuel the investigation. We've got a very clear understanding of the LockBit operation. That included seizing about 11,000 domains and servers around the world, as well as gaining access to nearly 1,000 potential decryption tools that could help more than 2,000 known victims regain access to their data. Chester Wisniewski, Global Field Chief Technology Officer at cybersecurity company Sophos, said that LockBit, which is believed to have first emerged in 2019, has risen to become the most prolific ransomware groups in the past two years. And this is a quote from Wisniewski, quote, The frequency of their attacks, combined with having no limits to what type of infrastructure they cripple, has also made them the most destructive in recent years. Anything that disrupts their operations and sows distrust among their affiliates and suppliers is a huge win for law enforcement. Unquote. However, Wisniewski added that much of their infrastructure is still online, suggesting there was still work to do to bring the hackers under full control of law enforcement. So another success story for multinational law enforcement agencies working in tandem to infiltrate and bring down some of these horrific ransomware and malware gangs. And I'm sure we'll get more details as this goes on. But so far, this looks like a, a like a good thing, though obviously a lot of the people that were involved in this, if they're in Russia, will probably never step foot in a court and be prosecuted for these things. 
But nevertheless, if we can get more information about how these guys work, you know, get access to the decryption tools, which may allow people to recover better from some of these attacks and learn about how these organizations works. I'm sure they've also got a lot of contacts uh, and, and other information that they've learned that hopefully will help them uh, bring down some uh, ancillary groups and maybe better prevent this in the future. Now, these things are often like a hydra. You know, you, you, you cut off one head and two more pop up. That may still happen but at least we are making some progress. All right, next up, this is from Wired, and it's about a welcome new feature in iMessage. Apple is launching its first post-quantum protections, one of the biggest deployments of the future-resistant encryption technology to date. While practical quantum computing technology may still be years or decades away, security officials, tech companies, and governments are ramping up their efforts to start using a new generation of post-quantum cryptography. These new encryption algorithms will, in short, protect our current systems against any potential quantum computing-based attacks. Today, Cupertino is announcing that PQ3, its post-quantum cryptography protocol, will be included in iMessage. The update will launch in iOS and iPadOS 17.4 and macOS 14.4 after previously being deployed in the beta versions of the software. Apple, which published the news on its security research blog, says the change is the most significant cryptographic security upgrade in iMessage history. And this is a quote from their blog post, quote, we rebuilt the iMessage cryptographic protocol from the ground up, unquote, adding that the upgrade will fully replace its existing encryption protocols by the end of this year. You don't need to do anything other than update your operating system for the new protections to be applied. Apple's rollout of PQ3 and iMessage follows Signal in introducing post-quantum algorithms. The encrypted messaging app introduced its PQXDH specification in September, saying it is built on the Kyber algorithm, which I'll come back to in a second. Proton, the creator of encrypted email and other apps, said around the same time that it is building post-quantum safe PGP encryption for everyone to use. While there's no guarantee that quantum technologies will ever develop enough to become useful, it's likely that the next few years will see a steady drip of companies deploying and enhancing their post-quantum protocols. In part, this is to combat one of the biggest current fears around quantum computing, that countries and threat actors are gathering and hoarding encrypted data today with the plan to unlock its secrets if quantum technologies evolve. Starting to deploy post-quantum encryption now, before functional quantum computers exist, has the potential to limit the impact of these so-called harvest now, decrypt later attacks. And this is a quote from Dustin Moody, who leads post-quantum encryption standards in the U.S. Uh, he told the New Yorker, quote, We are seeing our adversaries do this, copying down our encrypted data and just holding on to it. It's definitely a real threat, unquote. All right, so there's a lot to unpack there. We've talked about this a little bit, but just briefly, quantum computers are a different way of computing. It's hard to explain in 25 words or less, but the bottom line is that the way quantum computers work, it's believed they have the capability of short-circuiting the math that allows for decrypting encrypted communications. Uh, basically, the way encryption works is it's built on really hard math problems. It's very easy to, to compute in one direction and nearly, but not completely impossible to reverse. It's based on math problems that are called trapdoor functions that are easy to go one way and almost impossible to go the other way. I keep saying almost, I keep qualifying that because it's not impossible. It's almost impossible. It's very hard. And the way quantum computers work is they make that reversing process a lot easier. One of the properties for how they do the computing they do is such that they can make these 
problems that were once very, very hard for normal computers to work on, much easier to do. And so our scientists and cybersecurity researchers, including government and academia, have been working on the assumption that sooner or later these computers will be viable and therefore we need new types of encryption that are resistant to the kinds of math that quantum computers are very good at doing. They have these sort of contests where they ask for people to submit, usually academics or other researchers, to submit encryption algorithms for testing, for review, for basically being beat up by other really smart people to try to pick the ones that they think are best. And this process has already been going on. And one of the algorithms that has come out of this process that is currently one of the top runners for post-quantum crypto algorithms is this thing called Kyber, K-Y-B-E-R. And so since it's mature enough that it's usable, uh, we're seeing companies now starting to roll this out in their products and using this Kyber algorithm to encrypt their communications. But crucially, what we're also seeing in a lot of these cases is that, they're, is that they're not just using Kyber. A lot of the encryption technologies that we've been using for many, many years, decades in some cases, they've evolved. But like the, 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 the basic algorithms for how these things work have been vetted. We've been using them for, for many years and they've held up quite well. And we don't want to give those up. So in a lot of cases, what these companies are doing is they're actually double encrypting. They're actually using both the old time-tested pre-quantum algorithms that we use for encryption and further encrypting it with things like Kyber that are post-quantum. We kind of get the best of both worlds. And in case one of them fails, hopefully the other one still holds up. So it's great to see that Apple's building this into iMessage. Again, you don't have to do anything. You'll just magically get this as long as you keep your phone and Mac updated. So be sure to do that. We've got some more good news for you. And this is from Signal. And I'm going to read to you from their, uh, their press release on this. And I'll talk about it. Signal's mission and sole focus is private communication. For years, Signal has kept your messages private, your profile information, like your name and profile photo private, your contacts private, and your groups private, among much else. Now we're taking that one step further by making your phone number on Signal more private. Here's how. First of all, there's a new default. Your phone number will no longer be visible to everyone in Signal. If you use Signal, your phone number will no longer be visible to everyone you chat with by default. People who have your number saved in their phone's contacts will still see your phone number since they already know it. Next, connect without sharing your phone number. If you don't want to hand out your phone number to chat with someone on Signal, you can now create a unique username that could be used instead. You will still need a phone number to sign up for Signal. I'll come back to that in a minute. Note that a username is not the profile name that's displayed in chats. It's not a permanent handle and it's not visible to the people you are chatting with in Signal. A username is simply a way to initiate contact on Signal without sharing your phone number. And finally, control who you can find on Signal by phone number. If you don't want people to be able to find you by searching for your phone number on Signal, you can now enable a new optional privacy setting. This means that unless people have your exact unique username, they won't be able to start a conversation or even know that you have a Signal account, even if they have your phone number. Right now, these options are in beta and will be rolling out to everyone in the coming weeks. Note that even once these features reach everyone, both you and the people you are chatting with on Signal will need to be using the most updated version of the app to take advantage of them. Okay, so Signal is the secure messaging app that I have been recommending for many years now, and I still recommend. But one of the downsides to Signal until now is that you have to give them a valid phone number. You have to give them your valid phone number to sign up. And people 
thought that was a privacy problem. But one of the reasons Signal did that, and and they still do, by the way, they still require you to have a valid phone number to sign up for a Signal account, is it stops a lot of spammers. If you could just create any username willy-nilly left and right, then that tends to invite a lot of people to create temporary throwaway accounts that they use for spamming and just general annoying people. So by requiring you to have a valid phone number, which tends to be harder to to, to create because they, the phone, just the nature of the phone system requires that there's only so many of these things that the, those numbers tend to be owned by a service provider somewhere. To get one of those is a lot harder. So it just kind of throws a roadblock up or at least some speed bumps in the way uh, of spammers. So you will still need to have a valid phone number assigned to each of your signal accounts. But now, crucially, that number will not be shown to somebody that you're chatting with on Signal. And if you want, you can even turn on a privacy feature such that you can't be searched within the Signal system based on your phone number if you don't want to be found that way. And now you can create uh, a username instead and use that to give out to people so you don't have to give out your phone number. This is a very welcome development. I know a lot of people in my privacy community were very, very happy that this finally happened. Signal's been talking about doing this for years, and we were always like, yeah, yeah, I'll believe it when I see it. Well, it has finally happened. It's in beta currently, but it's going to be rolling out to everybody soon. If you want to lock in your specific username, you can pretty easily go and find and install the beta version of their software, and then you can find the setting that allows you to pick your username. Now, note, Usernames have to be globally unique, and Signal is requiring that every username end in a number, at least a two-digit number. Why? Well, they say they're doing this to prevent people from like squatting on really cool usernames, which definitely has happened with a lot of their systems. So by requiring a number, that kind of makes some of the you know, maybe more famous names, like let's say Taylor Swift. You can't just be Taylor Swift. You have to be Taylor Swift 89. And yes, she was born in 1989, and I actually know that. <laughs> But that brings up another important point. When you're picking your thing, don't pick your birth year as your number. Uh, you can actually pick bigger numbers than just two-digit numbers. Find something else that's interesting for you, but don't don't pick your birth year. All right, last up, this is from Lifehacker, and it's about some new Android features. Uh, I'll just read it quickly. Google is rolling out a new security feature that should make browsing on the web safer for Android users. The new feature called Android Safe Browsing notifies users of harmful websites and links. This functionality will work when users are running the built-in browsers of certain apps. Android Safe Browsing exists as part of the Google Play Services app found on all Android phones, meaning it will work on a range of browsers and apps once it's enabled. The goal is to prevent Android users from downloading malware or accidentally clicking phishing links that can steal personal data or login information when they're browsing web pages in, say, a social media app rather than in your standard browser. And we talked about this on the show before how a lot of times when you click on links in those social media apps or really any app, you don't get routed to your device's default browser. You're actually using a built-in web browser for that app. And the reason they do that is because they don't want you to use the default browser. They want to know everything you're doing in that browser. So they give you their own browser. And they also then can work around ad blocking and tracking blocking that might be in your default browser. So anyway, what this is saying is because of the way this new feature of Android's built into the operating system, that it will also work on these other in-app browsers. Aside from the Android safe browsing feature comes a live threat detection toggle, which offers even more accurate threat detection. Both features use Android's SafetyNet Safe Browsing API, which scans links and websites for threats and warns you when something you encounter isn't safe. 
While the new feature shouldn't be your only line of defense against malware or phishing attempts, it's an extra layer of protection that should keep your mobile devices and your personal data much safer. Google has been testing Android safe browsing in earnest over the past few months, and the feature was even available for select users as far back as October of 2023, but it's finally rolling out to everyone now as part of the latest Google Play Services update, which you can grab from the Google Play Store. Once the latest Google Play Services update is installed, you can enable Android Safe Browsing in a new menu found in your device's setting apps. Go to Settings, Security and Privacy, More Security and Privacy, or settings and then settings and privacy for Samsung Galaxy users. You can also find it, and this is the way I honestly find most settings these days because there's so many settings to find. You can find it by searching for Android Safe Browsing in your setting apps search bar. Select Android Safe Browsing to open the new menu, and from here you can see if the Android Safe Browsing is enabled and view a list of supported apps installed on your device. You can also tap on the Use Live Threat Protection to enable or disable the more accurate threat detection. So that's great. That's fantastic. We we like uh, having more security features and especially ones that uh, will apply to the non-standard browsers since so many of these apps like to provide those non-standard browsers uh, to bypass some of the other protections that we want in our browser. All right. So now let's do my tip of the week. Uh, and I had to take a little break there. My voice was getting a little hoarse. Uh, anyway, so uh, again, if you're a newsletter subscriber, you've already got this sitting in your inbox. Uh, if you want to read the full article with links and helpful things like that, go to firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com. There's a full article, probably the top one there. And I want to talk today about mitigating the risks of AI. And here's what I mean by that. So AI is the buzzword of the day. It's, it feels kind of like cryptocurrency was uh, not too long ago. Everybody's talking about it. Everyone's trying to find some way to bake in crypto and blockchain or something into their products because it's where the VCs are giving money and investors are clamoring for their companies, you know, and shareholders want their companies to include it because it's the hot new thing. It is definitely this gold rush thing. Is it overhyped? Absolutely. It's being overhyped. Uh, but in some ways, I think it's being underhyped. And let me explain. I think that unlike even cryptocurrency, uh, which did have some interesting technological underpinnings, which have been used other places that I think are interesting that you probably don't hear about. AI isn't like a normal tech fad in my view. You know, look past the hype. Try to try to get past the the marketing crap and and all the 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 sales pitches about how AI is going to change the world or subvert the world. Uh, it is a tool, like any other tool. It can and will be used for both good and bad and everything in between. But the underlying technology, the, the advances that were made when ChatGPT came out in November 2022 are important and consequential. And I think they will have lasting impacts. I do believe that this technology is going to be around for some time. And uh, I don't think we've even fully understood yet uh, what it's going to do for us uh, or against us uh, in the years to come. But, it, but it's not going anywhere. And so therefore... I think it's something that we need to understand. We need to take the take the time to understand what it is, what it isn't, what it can do, what it can't do. And for example, you, you hear about AI hallucinating. That is a thing. A lot of these AI programs, especially these large language models, are still basically just autocomplete on steroids. Uh, if you give it a whole bunch of input and then ask it to iteratively create some output based on that and a prompt, it's really good at putting together something that sounds believable. Uh, but in a lot of cases, it's it's wrong. It's just flat out wrong. It will confidently and glibly tell you facts that are not true. 
for example, uh, I asked it the other day because I have a trivia group and on they give us clues sometimes what one of the categories for the trivia night is going to be. And one of them was we're going to talk about people who are turning 40 this year. So I thought, oh, that's a perfect question, a prompt for ChatGPT. Let me fire that up and ask ChatGPT to give me a list of people turning 40 this year, famous people. And it did it. It absolutely did it. It gave me a list of maybe 20 people or, or so that were turning 40 this year. The only problem is most of them were not turning 40 this year. Uh, it gave me the names of famous people that did that just fine. Uh, it gave me birth dates, which is great. But unfortunately, a lot of those birth dates were completely and utterly wrong. Uh, as I was reading through the list, like I, at first it took me a while. Like I'm looking through like, wow, I, I, I thought that person was older or wow, surely that person is younger. I, I don't, can't believe those two people are the same age. They weren't. They, <laughs> Chat GPT was just totally wrong. So I encourage you to actually play around with it. But let, but let me come back to that. Let's talk about some of the risks for AI. First of all, a lot of AI processing today requires a lot of computing power, uh, either memory or processor time or whatever. And so uh, a lot of the computing for these AI tools is done in the cloud. And the cloud, as we like to say, is a fancy term for someone else's computer. But what that means is if you're giving ChatGPT a prompt, even if you're running it in a local app on your computer or on your phone, or you're asking it to generate an image or asking it to modify an image, a lot of the processing is actually not done on your device now. They're actually, because the computing power necessary, a lot of it's done in the cloud, which means that there's a privacy risk there. And in fact, a lot of companies now are banning the use of some of these AI tools because they're afraid that employees might be uploading proprietary or other sensitive data. And a lot of cases, these companies are under legal obligation not to, not to do that. Like they could be sued, right? So be aware that when you're using these tools, even if you're running an app on your computer, it's quite possible that the computing, the processing of that data is actually happening in the cloud, which means that your whatever information you gave it may be being uploaded to the cloud where at that point it might be shared or monetized or sold or whatever. Now, of course, it could, they, you know, all that could be happening even with regular apps, but just know that in particular with AI apps, that that's more likely, for example, to be the case. Okay, so great. These are, you could just not use those tools, right? Um, that That's an answer. But what I'm actually kind of more worried about, and one of the bigger risks, I think, is AI features being baked into tools that we are already currently using. For example, Microsoft Office, uh, maybe Adobe products, like if you're using Illustrator or Photoshop or some of these tools, a lot of them are baking in AI tools now. And a lot of these are just coming in the form of regular software updates. And these tools may be now uploading your information to the cloud for processing with, that they weren't doing before. And so it's kind of a bait and switch or a Trojan horse, depending on what metaphor you want to use. These are things that we have already been using and hadn't been thinking that maybe now the information, our personal information might be more vulnerable to being shared or have uh, additional privacy risks that we weren't aware of. Now, some of these AI features are opt-in, meaning that, you know, they'll have to give you some sort of a notice and then you'll give your consent that you want to use these tools. They may not be very open about why you might not want to consent, but that's why I'm telling you this now, as you're seeing these pop-ups saying, you know, do you want to enable these really cool AI features? You might want to think twice about it, or at least understand that when you do that, you are now potentially opening yourself up to privacy problems. But it even gets worse than that because... Uh, one of the th ways that these various AI tools differentiate themselves and make themselves more desirable uh, as a product to potential buyers or whatever is the amount of data that they have ingested to train themselves. These 
tools generally work by ingesting a whole corpus of information as much as possible generally. And so a lot of companies are now actually taking the data they already have, your data, and wanting to use that to train their AI models. For example, think of Facebook. How long have you been on Facebook? How long have the people you've known been on Facebook? Potentially well over a decade. Uh, they've got billions of users. They've got a lot of data. And so Facebook has already declared that they are going to be using that data to train up their AI models. Same thing for Google, uh, Dropbox, Zoom, uh, even Reddit. Reddit just signed, uh, I think, a $60 million a year deal with Google to let Google mine the Reddit user posts and user data to train their AI models. Microsoft has been kind of mealy-mouthed about this, but I'm pretty sure they're going to be doing it too. And in fact, a lot of companies last year quickly updated their terms of service to allow for this. And you probably got an email about this that you didn't read, or maybe when a software update came through, there was an okay button that, you know, said, click here to see what we've changed in our terms of service, which is a little itty bitty link underneath the big, bright, shiny, okay button that you probably just hit. The, but basically the lawyers of these companies wanted to make sure uh, that they changed their terms of service and basically said, by continuing to use our service, you are agreeing to let us use all of this data that we've collected to train AI, AI models, which honestly, most of their terms of service said that everything you upload to them, they kind of have control over anyway, but you know, they want to cover their butts. And so you probably saw a rash of that last year. Okay. So what can you do about this for these new tools, you know, chat GPT and stable diffusion and some of these, these standalone new tools, you could just not use them, but I would like to recommend otherwise. Uh, I would like to recommend that with these privacy concerns in mind that you learn about how these tools work and how they don't work. I've got some links in the show notes you can check out, but I think it's important that we understand it and it's not going anywhere. It's going to be an important tool and we need to kind of understand and get a feel for what these things are and what they are not. So, you know, don't give it a lot of private information, but play with them, understand what they do. What, and again, what they don't do. See if you can get one of these tools to hallucinate. See if you can give it to tell you something that is not true and see that they, that they do it in a way that sounds like they're completely confident in what they're telling you is true, stating it as a fact when it is not a fact. Um, see if you can break through some of the guardrails that some of these tools have on them to try to prevent you from, for example, asking it how to build a pipe bomb or something. Now, I don't recommend maybe you try to do that specifically, but like, for example, there's a Gandalf AI tool uh, that's a game and you get, it gets progressively harder and it adds more guardrails to the system, uh, but you can work around those guardrails and you can kind of figure out how to trick these tools into doing things they're not supposed to do. But also these tools are doing some really cool things. They, they're very powerful. I think you'll find that these tools can help you and, and do some very interesting things for you. So I think it's important that we, that we understand them. And to do that, we gotta, we gotta play with them. Now for the, for the other software packages that we're already using that are adding AI features, uh, be careful when you get software updates, especially that says they've changed their terms of service. You might want to look into that. Uh, I recommend you kind of dig into the privacy and security settings of these tools to look and see if there's anything around AI and what they might do with sharing information. If you could turn those off, definitely do so. Uh, I'm not sure how much effect that will have. But at least you can say, you know, hey, I don't want you using my data for this and have that recorded. And as far as for all the companies that already have all your data, you know, social media companies, maybe in particular, or have access to a whole bunch of your emails or blog posts, again, see if you can pick through uh, the privacy settings and see if there's a way for you to say, I don't want you to use any of my data. If you actually own a website, 
there are ways to set up a, a text file, like a robots.txt file that says, please don't crawl my site for, uh, for your AI systems. So I guess what I'm saying is opt out where you can look for those ways to opt out. And if you can't, you know, maybe this is now the last straw. Maybe this is where you say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to quit this social media app. I'm going to delete my account. I'm going to ask them to delete my data. Maybe you want to get a copy of that data first. A lot of them will have tools for you to download a copy of your data and then delete it. And the last thing is, of course, this is an election year in the United States. Talk to your representatives, go to those town halls, uh, register your concerns about AI and try to get your elected representatives to, to pass some laws to, to protect you. Because in the end, that's probably what's going to need to happen. And if nothing else, push them to at least uh, ask for transparency so that you can make an informed decision. You should know where AI is being applied, how it's being used, which, which AI version is being used, and that sort of thing, so you can make informed decisions as a consumer and as a citizen. Now, one quick possibly positive note is uh, I said a lot of this computing needs to be done on the cloud. Uh, that is true. Uh, however, uh, chip makers like Apple with the chips in their iPhones and, and Macs now, their Apple Silicon chips, uh, Intel, AMD, and some others, they're building in what they call neural engines or AI accelerators. Uh, these are hardware level things that make their chips more powerful in terms of doing AI processing, which should mean, theoretically at least, that in the future, at least some portion of this AI work can be done locally again and not have to go to the cloud, which is certainly better for your privacy. So there you have it. If you want more information and links to a lot of the things I talked about, just go to firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com and find my article on mitigating the risks of AI. So there you have it. There's your news and your tip of the week. All right, that's going to do it for this week, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. Next week, we've got an interview with two of the four people uh, from 404 Media. Uh, That's been a long time coming. I've been quoting their articles now ever since they came out about six months ago. It's a really interesting interview. We talk about data collection and surveillance, and and we talk about that crazy story about that company who openly claimed to be listening in on your conversations. In the coming weeks, I've got interviews on medical privacy and also the Kids Online Safety Act, which is a pretty bad bill in front of Congress right now, trying to protect kids online, but in the reality has a lot of knock-on effects that are not good. So we'll talk about that and lots, lots more in the pipeline. So if you haven't subscribed, go ahead and do that and then you won't miss any of that. So take care, everybody. Stay safe out there. And until next week, as always, don't get caught with your drawbridge down.